so the topic that I have given myself so this is my own fault nope that's the leaflet oh, oh look I got too eager that time go back there you go this is part of our vision series uh, and this is a lot I guess of my heart and my thinking and my praying and my um, learning post sabbatical um, and it follows on from our vision stuff that Matt and I shared last week. So the first one we're going to look at this morning is a family I didn't choose. It will make sense. So let me ta- start with two stories. One's a modern retelling and one is from my life. I don't know if you noticed, but my mum turned up to church four or five weeks ago. Jill was on Welcome and Richard. Um, and I was talking at the front. And my mum came in, spoke to Jill. My brothers with them, they were outside. They were waiting to, in a taxi to go to London. And Jill came in and whispered to me, Ben, your mum's outside. They want to see you. It's important. And I go, Jill, who is my brother or sister? Who is my mother? One story. Second story. When I got baptised um, quite a few years back, um, my friend who was leading the service, and I have shared this before, used the words, we want to welcome Ben into a new family. My mum, in not being from church background, had my bags ready for me when I got home past my baptism service. I got home, she was waiting by the door, and told me, Ben, you obviously don't need us anymore. You've got your new family. Two stories about family. The story that I gave first, you know is not really true. You know it is the story from Matthew 14, Matthew 12, sorry. But could you imagine if I had done that, would some of you guys be starting to worry about me even more than normal? Let's just put that there. Would you be like going, I need to speak to Matt? This is not how an elder or a church leader should behave. He's rude. He's obnoxious. How could he say that about his mum? It was urgent. It was important. But yet those are the words that we see penned in Matthew 12, 46 to 50. And we're going to look at that today. But the question has been risen, and there's something I've been exploring, is has my experience of being in this new family been what I expected? for that to sink in. It's been a mix of a yes and no. Some churches, it's been what I hoped for, and I've been welcomed in like a son to a fellowship. And as a family, we've been welcomed in. But others, if I'm honest, feels like a member of a club than a family. I attend, I go through the motions, I leave, I'm not changed. If we're going to see and hear what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, we need to wrestle with this. This is one of those passages that the God we know or the Jesus we love doesn't fit the sort of boundaries that we put in. Was Jesus interrupted in his prime of a teaching? Was he just fed up of his mum just continuing to talk to him? Oh, mother's. This interaction is unattractively rude and goes against all that we know about Jesus. Or is Jesus doing and saying something profoundly good 
but lost in translation across the centuries and the hemispheres that divide our world from his. Do we miss that those in the, what those in the room heard and understood through their ancient ears? This text, this little passage from Matthew 12, is found in three of the synoptic. Sorry, not three of the synoptica. Of the, is found in three of the gospels, known as the synoptics: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No, not John. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Stop. And there's 30 teachings that work like that. So the scholars that put the Bible together gave us a message, a text, that actually makes us uncomfortable. So the question is, what on earth could this mean? Text seems so essentially important, and yet for us, an uncomfortable awkwardness. A text that creates a negative response. Jesus claims that his life is the fulfillment of the whole of the Bible. And if we go going to understand, interpret his life, we have to understand the events, his life, in the broader story he's fulfilling. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be moving through from the beginning to the end, looking today at the story of family. To understand that in one moment, in a small house in the middle of a rural village, Jesus' words still matter today. But before we start, I suppose I want to acknowledge this, that from my story that I shared um, and what my experience has been of church is we don't always get it right. Church, as much as it is meant to be this beautiful bride of Christ, damages, hurts and breaks people. It's the sadness for every church leader that we look out and we can see that in how churches run, they hurt people. And it hurts. It's a pain. And imagine the pain for me and imagine the pain for God that this beautiful thing he created actually hurts people. So hold that bit, but then also hold the family bit. I'm going to be talking about family for the next two weeks. Mine is dysfunctional at best. My view of my father is a different one to many. So when I think of family and church, I've got to try and hold that tension to see what God is asking us to be something different. But we don't want to just fly past this. Because words have been said, families have been broken, church families have been broken. Church families have said things to each other that are mean and nasty. We have words that still hold us today, I believe, that have been spoken over us by other people in church. The place where we should get it right. So I've asked Stu if he could just share a moment, a prayer or some thoughts on this. I'm just going to stop because I don't want to go talk about family until we've just let God speak into this ourselves. Sometimes when I listen to the national news, an item comes on and they preface the item by saying if any of you are going to be affected by this uh, there is a phone number there is a web page there is a something that you can go to that gives you extra help and I'm really conscious that um, some of the things that we might raise in prayer today may just give some anxiety and that's not that's not deliberate it's just how the spirit of God may work with us um, and so I, I want to say, uh, Ben and myself, um, June, others, we are available if you just need some help afterwards. This is not to raise 
you know, this is supposed to be a safe place, isn't it, when we come in? Okay, so we're not trying to make people feel uncomfortable. We may bring those uncomfortable things with us because of the past. So this is what I'm going to try and try and lead us through. I've got about 85 prayers I've written down, and I'm going to use two of them. Okay, but I'll preface it like this. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will refresh your life, for I am your oasis. Come away with me and you'll recover your life. Simply join your life with mine. Dear Lord, we, we join in heaven's song for you, proclaiming that you are holy, 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 a God of purity and light. We acknowledge you never lie, you never manipulate, you never abuse. You do not wound or traumatize. Your nature is unlike the corruption that exists because some of the things have happened in our lives that have caused us to become disorientated and cynical and damaged and sad. Sometimes those things have happened in our families. Sometimes they've happened in church. Sometimes in our close relationships. Sometimes even at work. So as we come to pray, Lord, would you bring that spirit of unity and love and righteousness to each of us. You see, Lord, we want to follow you. We really want to follow you. That's why we came this morning. That's why we're watching online this morning. But we are aware that some of us carry hurts and scars, things that have been inflicted upon us that we never asked for, that went deep inside, which have caused and continue to cause trauma and hurt. Because we've sensed that other people have judged us, that they've been unable to see our point of view, that they became rigid towards us rather than flexible and compassionate. Please forgive your church where those things have happened, we pray. Sometimes in our families, we've known cruelty rather than kindness. We've known abuse rather than trust. Sometimes at work, our colleagues have been unfaithful to us, selfish, uncaring. And Lord, yes, there have been times when we have not stood up for righteousness. Sometimes because we just couldn't. 
sometimes because we wouldn't and sometimes we've harboured bitterness which has erupted within us because we don't feel any other way of expressing how hurt we feel Lord would you come and minister healing to us I thank you today that the spirit of the living God has a beautiful gift of healing to give. And I pray, Lord, from the back of the room to the front of the room, from the side to the side, that all of us may experience the spirit of healing that comes. And we know because your spirit lives deep within us, in the bowels of our being, that that healing can get to the very root what has been damaged it can go back over years hallelujah it can go towards the future where we perhaps have feared it and in our present where we've worried whether things will ever change thank you for your healing thank you for your love Thank you. You are the one that we trust. And somehow you trust us too. Amazing. So Lord, we finish with your words again. Learn my ways, you say. Take my yoke upon you. Learn the unforced rhythms of life. And you'll discover that I won't lay anything heavy on you. That I'm humble and gentle and easy to please. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Thanks be to God. Amen. That felt uh, an important stopping point. It seems strange to do that when I preach, but when we talk about family, I think it's really important that we give God space to do and work and change us. Um, part of my time away and since I've been back is actually I've had to say to God and allow God to heal me, which seems a strange thing to say. But for so many of my back history, past family experiences, that's become my story rather than an area God can heal. So this morning, we just wanted to give you some time to let God and the Spirit just speak into that. But it's a beginning of a journey. It's not a finished article. And if there are things that you would like to speak to around stuff where church may have hurt you or family still hurts you, then please do grab one of us or grab a friend and just get them to pray with you and into what's going on. As I said, this is a topic I've been mulling over for a while. It's not something that's just come up this week. There is lots of stuff that I could speak on, um, and I'm doing my best to not speak on all of it. Um, a little bit of a brook plug. When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman 
really fascinating book if you enjoy more of the history side of stuff and unpacking what the church looked like for Jesus compared to what it looks like today and the problems, the issues, the difficulties. Can we hope for a church that the Bible talks about today and stuff like that? So a lot of my thinking has come from him and a few other bits of time, one with God and spending time, but also just listening and investing into this topic. So my brain feels a little bit of full of information on church, family, community, getting it right, healing and all that stuff. But I'm going to look at four elements. And the white doesn't work, and I know it looked beautiful on the screen, but I will tell you what they are. Um, so family through creation, family through the fall, family through redemption, and family and renewal. My heart is that the text that we see as offensive and dismissive will be beautiful as it was in the ears of those that first heard. So the first one is creation, part one. If you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis. At the beginning, in the, in the beginning, opening lines of Genesis, we see three portraits of God. The creative Elohim that creates heaven and earth. Number two, the spirit of God or the spirit within that fills and permeates and is everywhere. And then the creative agent, the word of God, through which Elohim is ordering creation. Page one, paragraph one. God is introduced as incomprehensibly mysterious. One in three. Completely one, yet three in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God that we know at the very centre of who he is, is fundamentally communal. Let's take that one step further. It's not that his centre is just that. He's intrinsically, everything about him is community. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God being in community, God being that then made us in the same way the first line of the blessing was to create and multiply in number we were not to be alone god is community and then he blesses us to create a community to create an earthly reflection of the trinity with a task to share that beautiful reflection with the world and then we get to the bit that we do know about we've heard many times the fall Genesis 3, verse 6. And it's interesting how original sin is depicted in Genesis. is quite telling. Eve is deceived by a serpent who is chipping away at her trust in God, convincing her that the fullest life is found not in trusting God, rather is in grabbing control yourself. Eve believes a lie and acts on a lie, eating the forbidden fruit, and Adam follows suit. Original sin is both personal and communal in nature. It affects our relationship with God and with each other. We lived in peace with God and each other, and now that peace is gone in the presence of temptation. And then on verse 7 in Genesis, At that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame and nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. The consequence of their sin, of this sin, was horizontal and vertical. It affected our relationship with God, but also affected our relationship with others. 
Sin is the breakdown of that image of blessing of God that he put within us, distinguish us from the whole of creation. We were to be an image here on earth of his heavenly three-in-one communal character. That was the image we meant to be. But what happens is something else. Chapter 4 of Genesis, we see the complex acts of jealousy between Cain and Abel. He failed to, failed, failed to live in peace with another person before God in the face of temptation. A sinful act occurred that is followed by the harrowing question, am I my brother's keeper? Simple answer, yes, you are. But sin has made what was created obvious, warped, distorted and deceived. And it's a story that we see ourselves today. And why I think sometimes we find church so hard. Part three, redemption. And I'm I'm aware that some of this language is very Christian language. But what do I mean by redemption? It's the bigger rescue plan that God is working out around us. Buying back or repurchasing what was previously forfeited or lost. Restoring it to its original intention. Which is a beautiful idea. And a beautiful thing that we know. From Israel's journey with God, we see Israel part of this biblical pattern where sin wins and brokenness ensues. It is also, however, part of the remedy God works out in our redemption. In that those that are broken and got it wrong, God is healing the world through the sick. That's us. That is very good news. And then we move on to Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Egypt. His parents fled as refugees to escape the tyrannical regime of ruler Herod. And we go to Matthew 2. So if you've got your Bibles, flick through, or your Bible, your or apps, scream through. In chapter 2, Herod is dead, and his son has taken over. So Mary and Joseph returned back, but they didn't get there. And Matthew 2 talks about it. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Good old dreams and angels love it. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who are trying to kill you are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left the region of Galilee. So the question you're asking is, who is Archelaus and what was so scary about him? Archelaus turned out to be even worse than Herod. And we know how bad Herod was, killing babies and doing all these things. At time in history, it says that thousands of Israel, Israelites formally complained and appear in Rome before Augustus to have him charged. This is how bad he was that Christians actually did something about it. But when they went to trial... His family were not willing to defend him. But let's not miss this, but they were also not willing to join in the accusation. Because, and this is where historian Josephus accounts, that there was no greater wrong than you to turn your back on a brother or sister, no matter what they'd done. In the world Jesus grew up in, there was no greater sin to be disloyal to your relatives. 
as history says, where Herod got in a bind with his wife and his sister. And as a result, he had to put his wife to death. Because blood runs deeper than marriage in the first century. Jesus' world was profoundly family and bloodline, which for us today might seem a little bit strange because we don't run that way, especially in our highly singular lives. So let's look at Matthew 8, 18-22. Thank you. So he went to the other side. Then one of the teachers of the religious law said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Another of his disciples said, Look, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Writers suggest that the father, this disciple's father is not really near death but he's waiting for it to happen, whenever that may be. Five, ten, twenty years. The shock of Jesus' words are not that he's being insensitive to the young man in the midst of his bereavement, but what he is saying is diametrically opposed to the family model Jesus is placing him in. Jesus is calling this man to the most subversive act imaginably, to radically exchange your current family model to the one that my father set up in the beginning. Jesus is setting a new family on earth. Exchange your father's inheritance for mine, and it's the only one that will last. It's worth everything you've got. Jesus is offering in this family a bargain of a lifetime. But it's in that moment, it's a tall order and this radical exchange. Just like when we become a Christian. Let's move to Mark 10, 28 to 30. And this is Jesus and Peter having an interesting interaction about this new family. Where Peter says, I've left, we've given up everything to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or property for the sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and property persecution and in the world to come that person will have eternal life which does ask the question is he talking about heaven and earth or is he talking about both and you know with Jesus the answer is yes it is both but do you hear the echo of Jesus words to the disciple to let the dead bury the dead it's the same sentiment using different words Matthew 10, which we're further on in the passage, in 21, talks about brothers rebelling against brothers. Verse 37, if you love your father or your mother more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. Fascinating, deep questions that arise, arise from these texts. But some of these will be looked in life groups this week. Um, it's the leaders have been given some questions to try and unpack how that works. But it does raise us this question. How can the same God that gave us the Ten Commandments on honouring your father and mother say things like this? But 
But for me, it asked me this question. What are the competing loyalties of our world that we try and drag into our relationship with Jesus? Back to the text, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. And we're going to look at two things. What Jesus said and what Jesus... Look, I can't even see it, but it was beautiful. What Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say. What Jesus defined and what Jesus endorsed. Firstly, what he said and what he didn't say. For whoever does the will of the Father is my brother, sister and mother. Jesus calls his own followers, brothers, sisters and mothers, the family unit. This most profound, deep, loyal, rich connection in the world. That's what he just said. What he didn't say there's one role missing in this family unit father he doesn't call any of his followers father he doesn't try to be fatherly role for others forever whoever does the will of my father in heaven because jesus has a father and talks about him quite a lot through the gospels he has this personal relationship jesus is coming to say that he's created a family that existed from the beginning of time one that looks like the image of God in community, unified, and my family is brother, sister, and mother. We don't need a father. We go back to Mark 10, and we look at the bits that he gave up. Notice what is missing in the return. Everything except the father. You're multiplying your inheritance in your family every way, bar, every way bar one, and that is your father. That's an exchange one for one. Whereas this radical exchange into a new family is something that we are working through. When we say yes, we come into a new family, one with one father and many siblings. That's what Jesus said and didn't say. Now onto the second part, what he defied and what he endorsed. Jesus defied the social fabric of his world. In ancient times, if the father died, it was the son's responsibility to take on everything. You would have to give up your rights, your hopes, your dreams, your marriage, your family, your relationships to take on the role of the eldest son. Joseph, Joseph's, Joseph's father passed away in this passage. And his mother and brother are outside. And Jesus defines that role. And most importantly, he did it in front of everybody else. Did it in public. If you thought Jesus was being rude, it was worse than that. This isn't about manners. He's tearing apart the social fabric of the first century world he came into. But he's not doing it to destruct, deconstruct it. He's doing it to create. Pointing to his disciples, he says, Here are my mother, my brother, and my sisters. The strongest social bond in society, the family and blood loyalty, but that is how tight Jesus is tying himself to anyone who calls himself father. I'm Jesus' brother. You are Jesus' brother. As scandalous as the denial of his family was, the endorsement of a new family was all the more scandalous. Jesus is announcing the new birth of his family in the midst of the world. And he's doing it in the same language that everybody else uses, With all its complexities and individual preferences, family is meant to be deep, 
purposeful and defining. He's planting a flag in a new family model that will change the world. And it's not just a metaphor of the family. It's a revolution. It's a revolution that defines us at this deepest level and makes demands of us also. As an apprentice, as somebody that follows Jesus, I am birthed into this new family, just like I was told at my baptism. One with my father, one father and many siblings. The most tight-knit community of family imaginable. In the Gospels, Jesus shared the parable of the lost sheep. So often we're excited by and hopeful that the shepherd goes and gets the one. What I think sometimes we miss is that he returns the sheep to the 99. Family does not work with just you and Jesus. Remember sin's nature from the fall? It's to warp, distort and deceive what God created obvious. Cyprian of Carthage, good old guy, said, You cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. In the fall, we saw both horizontal and vertical damage to our relationships with God and with each other. And Hellman makes the observation that he believes the church, current church is a community in crisis. And it will remain in such as long as we fail to capture the biblical understanding of salvation as a community-creating event. When I became a Christian, I got called into something bigger. Yet my experience has been sometimes that I've been called into a lonely walk with just me and God. Family, church, community is meant to be something different. Thumb through your Bible to Acts 2. And I believe the moment that we're living in now, the gathered church... Um, you know the you know the story. Peter is standing up in front of all of these different people, different ty- tribes, tongues, and nations, and he shares with them the word of God, and they respond. They responded to this one God in community. But if you notice, if you're reading through those passages, they didn't go home and plant churches that suited their preference with their respected languages, tribes, and tongues, they created one church. And in this one church, they ate, shared their stories, they shared everything they had. They sold land for those that needed finance, their inheritance for one another's needs, and they worshipped together with gratitude and devotion. This one church started to be one family. It was a community-creating event, Pentecost, that was restored the vertical with our Father and the horizontal with our brothers and sisters. It was a disruptive revolution event that created unity. And when I look at that, I then question, is that church? Is that us? Is that new life church? Acts that redefine us Acts that reunited us and acts that make sorry and made demands of us. Live as a family that is different to the world, not that mimics. And as much as we look at the cultural look around us, there's some really good stuff from the world that helps us. 
but if church looks so much like the world that it's not recognisable, it stopped being church. I've got a little graph. There we go. It's not just in the Gospels. Paul continues to use the family language. You can see up there, 139 times Paul uses the word brothers or sisters. And this is Paul who wasn't part of this church family. But he came into this church family. And he saw a revolution that would change the world. Today we may believe that we're in God's family positionally, but the challenge comes in whether that applies to relationally as well. Meaning we believe we've entered into a new and eternal family in a very real and eternal sense. But we do we treat each other as brothers and sisters in a familiar, familial, familial, familial and relational sense right now? And that was some of my reflection. Has church just been a place where we know we're going to heaven? Or is it a church where I can be myself, share my story, and know other stories? Is it a place where people want to share their story with you? And when I talk about church here, it's not just this. Please hear me. It's your life groups. It's your prayer partners. It's those moments where you spend time with other Christians. But do we hide our true self from the church family? Hellman makes this other quote. He said, We've been socialized to believe that our individual fulfillment and our personal relationship with God are more important than any connection we may have with others. I'll read that again. We've been socialized to believe that our individual fulfillment and personal relationship with God are more important than our connection with fellow human beings. So it's created this question on me. Is church meant to be more? Are we meant to be more? What do we look like? What do we act like? How do we be? And this phrase kept on going through my head when I was away, is that church is meant to be a place that I want to be, rather than I have to be. And I'm still working on that, and I'm still thinking about that. And as I said, our teaching, I believe, will speak into that over this next year. Because church, if we want it to be what God wants of us, has to be different. It can't be individualistic. It can't be my needs about the others. It's got to be something we do together. There's got to be vulnerability. There's got to be openness. And again, not Sunday mornings necessarily. Life groups, one-to-ones, walks with friends, not just your spouses. And I put that in there delicately. Because we do this journey with others, but we have to be open. Now next week I'm going to spend some more time unpacking what this means for us as church and what is this community going to look like? What do we think it should be? But I'm just going to finish with three little bits before Phil and Joe come back. And there are these. We are redefined by blessing. I'll start on that one. 
And at first I'd gone for encouragement. We are redefined by encouragement. But then when I looked at defining encouragement, I noticed that it was this. I notice and name something good in what you do. And that's why I changed it to blessing. Because blessing I see is I notice and name something good in who you are. Simple little change of words. But it feels like encouragement is performance where blessing is about the person and identity. And in the Hebrew and Greek, the word blessing biblically is to speak intention of God on them. What a beautiful description of what it is. And it's a beautiful difference as we are called to see the who and not the what. Blessing breaks down and through a performance-addicted culture, the one we live in, and then defines us in the very way God does. Blessing is a duet with God where my voice echoes his, redefining my brothers and sisters through the image and gaze of the Father. Wouldn't that be a beautiful place? That our conversations are like that? We are reunited by time, is the other one. A recent study suggests that we are losing empathy, patience and compassion from the youngest to the oldest. And the reason they give for this, and the reading groups would love this, it's because we don't read fiction. Wow. We watch more films. We enjoy TikTok and whatever the other modern versions are that I don't know. Um, And the, the response they give back is time. Because when you read a novel, you have to get to know the story. You invest in it. You get to know them. It takes longer to read the story of a fictional character. And by doing so, you get to know them for who they are. Where films are quick, often fast forward or skimmed to the good bits. We fall asleep or we're distracted by something else. We have our phone. We're looking outside. Have we lost the art of taking time? And when you finished the film, you may have had your empathy stroked and your compassion but you disconnect quickly and return to something else. And as I see that, and as I think about that, I think that's also us with each other. Have we lost the disconnect of time? That everything else is more important than sharing our story with somebody else. And it's twofold. It's not finding out about somebody else, but it's also sharing your story. Most of us would be more happier to listen to others than share where we're at. When we create time, we enter into each other's stories, the burdens and experiences. We walk in each other's shoes and we build empathy, patience and compassion for others. Time is the soil where empathy and compassion grow. And as we read into each other's lives, may we sit and take the novel of those around us, not being content with an overview or synopsis. We cheat. We look at the prayer stuff from David and Rita that they send out and go, well, I know what's going on, so I don't have to have a conversation. God's family then goes, I'm sorry to hear that. What's going on? Anything I can help with? Just as an example. There's many different things. You haven't got a car. I'm sorry, do you want mine? That's next week. I don't want to go into that one yet. 
but we are called to read into each other's lives and share our story as well. And then the last one, which I think is also quite hard when we talk about family. And this is this, nothing demands more of us than forgiveness. God's purpose over my preferences. Let's not be a people that copy culture and seek to be right over our preferences at the expense of this beautiful county cultural family that is made in the image of God himself. C.S. Lewis helpfully said this, you must ask for God's help. After each failure, ask forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. In the family of God, we are not made new. So we are made new not by perfection or critique, but by forgiveness. And that's not just forgiveness from God, but that's forgiveness for each other. For those that may be taking notes, may have noticed I've only mentioned three. Creation, the fall, and redemption. And the last one is renewal. This is what I'm going to finish with in Revelation 21, 3 to 7. It said, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things have gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, your text, that paints a picture of family and community that is different. And Lord, I'm sorry for church, I'm sorry for us and our decisions sometimes where we seem to copy the world rather than you. Lord, as we walk in this for the next week and we explore what it means to us practically next week, help us to see what you are saying. Help us to hold this tension of this beautiful version that you are asking of us. And Lord, we pray for creativity. We pray for imagination. We pray for curiosity to see that this could be done differently. We pray for boldness to be able to share possibly more of our story than we're used to sharing. We pray for openness to ask how somebody is doing. Lord, we pray against that word pride. That Lord would say, but they don't understand, they don't know. I don't want to be hurt again. Lord, we pray against that. Lord, and we pray that Lord, we would be that safe place to talk about where we could learn and grow and encourage and push on our youngest to our oldest. That this would be a place where we want to be because we meet you. And we 
see you in others and we see you in what you are doing through us. In Jesus' name.